0: In a quiet field of northern France once stood tall towers of bricks, the Brickstacks. Here the hellish world of the Western Front unfolded over four long years. What can we find here on this part of the Forgotten Front? We've returned to the Forgotten Front this week. We might ask ourselves, what is the Forgotten Front? Well, this is a bit of ground between the two great battlefields of Ypres in Flanders to the north and the ground around Arras to the Somme in the south. It's that part of the British sector of the Western Front that connects those two areas together and it runs approximately from near to the town of Armentieres on the border between France and Belgium down through the flatlands of northern France west of Lille going through some of the great battlefields like Neuve Chapelle, Albers Ridge and Festubert, across the Labasse Canal and down towards the area around Luz. And this term, forgotten front, is something that I seem to recall came from Rose Coombs. I can't remember whether she actually mentioned it in her book Before Endeavors Fade, which is that great bible to the western front battlefields, but it's certainly something I remember her saying. And when I wrote a little section on my very first Great War website that I launched in 1999 when I was still living on the Somme in the old days of Microsoft Pages, which made it very easy to write and publish a website. And that website, which is also called The Old Frontline, is still online, and you'll find it by following a link which I'll put to the, the new Old Frontline website, the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. But on that website I did a section on the Forgotten Front looking at some of those battlefields and and it's forgotten in that the great battles of the Somme and Arras and Messines and Passchendaele they do to a degree overshadow some of the earlier events of the war and there's a lot to see on that front from Armentiers down to Luz. The geography of the ground is pretty much unchanged, there's been a bit of development here and there But it's an area full of concrete structures, for example, both British and German. A huge number of cemeteries, some of them relating to the great battles of 1915 and and some of the fighting right at the beginning of the war in October, November 1914. But most of the men buried on this front were not killed in big battles going over the top. It was minor operations or the day-to-day activities of trench warfare. And it's part of the Western Front that I've always been drawn to. So a couple of years ago, I began writing another one of my walking books, which will cover this part of the battlefields called Walking the Forgotten Front, which I should have finished last year, but will probably be finished this year and hopefully will be out towards the end of this year or the beginning of 2023. And that will look at different sectors along there, from Armantiers down to Luz, and including what we're going to look at during the course of this week's walk. So this week's podcast is some of the content that will appear in this chapter of that book, so hopefully it will whet your appetite, and we will return, as always, to these different parts of the front during the course of future podcasts as well. So where are we then? Well, we're going to start in the village of Cambrian, then we're going to walk up to the ground around the village of Quinchy or Quinchy as the British troops called it, close to the sites of the infamous brick stacks, and we'll explain a little bit more about what they are in due course. But in terms of the timeline, the historical timeline of where we are during the course of this walk and how that fits into the wider aspect of this forgotten front, there were actions here in this ground around Cambrian and Quinchy in 1914 involving the French army. In the autumn of 1914, the German army wheeled up towards northern France and into Flanders in the so-called Race to the Sea. And the ground here around the town of Bethune, which stood on the main road routes up towards the coast, stood in the path of this German advance. And French troops, and to the north of the La Basse Canal, which runs from near to Bethune, across this part of the battlefield, into the town of La Basse, formed the dividing line between the French and the British. So north of that canal there were British soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force, old contemptibles, men of the regular army, and some of the first territorials eventually as well, taking part in operations there, leading to the stabilisation of the front with the Germans advancing no further, they began to dig in here, and then the French in this sector, and the British to the north, up towards Armentieres and beyond Flanders, began to dig in as well. And, and in that early period of the war, the trenches were pretty primitive. There were pre-war engineering manuals, both in the British Army, and I would guess in the French Army as well, and no doubt in the German Army, that gave soldiers the instructions that they needed to dig trenches, but not quite on the scale that the Western Front very quickly began. And day after day, week after week, throughout that period of the winter of 1914-15, the whole infrastructure of the battlefield here increased. So by the spring of the following year, there was this big network of trenches across this region of northern France. In 1915, the British, faced with this stalemate, decided to go on the offensive. The German policy was a defensive one. They had failed to win the war in the West, so dug in. And their policy was to allow the Allies to attack them, the French and the British, and to a lesser degree, the Belgians. And hopefully they would throw men at the German defences, which they continuously improved upon... And with heavy losses, which the Germans calculated that the Allies would sustain in trying to take these positions, they might eventually sue for peace. So, although Germany might not win a decisive military victory on the battlefield, it would end the war in the West and concentrate on its bigger fear, which was the Russian army in the East. But in 1915, on this front more towards Armentiers with the first major British offensive of Neu-Chapelle and then the fighting on the Albers Ridge and Festubert and Gavinci. That was north of the Labasse Canal. Here to the south, around Cambrian and Quincy, was the changeover of this being a French sector where there'd been some small-scale actions in late 1914 and early 1915 to it becoming part of the British sector and that then saw an increased number of British soldiers coming here. Gradually the extension of the line down towards Luz, and then in September 1915 there was the Battle of Luz that took place just beyond these villages. The area around the brick stacks that we'll come to later on in the walk, that was not directly fought over them but to the south of it. An attempted advance was made there but was thrown back with heavy losses, and further to the south, on its right flank if you like, the Hohenzollern Redoubts, that area was continuously fought over during the Battle of Luz and the failure to capture that meant that this bit of ground near to the neighbouring village of Oshile behind the German lines that meant that this ground didn't progress any further so following the battle of loos this became a static sector it became in the terminology of the day a nursery sector where units would be brought out to acclimatize to trench warfare and these were initially some of the men from the territorial force the territorial army coming across as they did in great numbers in 1915 and as the early spring to summer of 1915 moved towards the autumn more and more men from Kitchener's army the new army the volunteers of 1914 and early 1915 they came across as well and they did their turn in these trenches throughout late 1915 after Luz on into 1916 and then after that with the Battle of the Somme being fought further down the line Units having taken a blooding on the Somme moved up here for a rest in inverted commas in this quiet sector, and you see unit after unit progressing through here as well. And that continued almost to the end of the war. In 1918, the Germans launched a whole series of offensives along the Western Front to try and break the Allied line, the French line and the British line. And on the Somme in March, they broke through there, and in April, with the Battle of the Lys, the ground to the north from here collapsed. So north of the La Canal, the Germans broke through and the line was pushed right back almost to the outskirts of Bethune. But this ground here held, and to the south, the ground around Luz held as well. The Germans didn't attack in that direct area. So what that meant, when you look at the trench maps for this part of the battlefield, very little changes between the formation of the fronts in late 1914 and the end of the war. The final attacks in this area that pushed the German army back, and it's difficult to know whether we pushed them back or whether they really just withdrew, that took place in the autumn of 1918. So for almost four years, the line here was pretty much static. There was a slight movement here and there, often only tens of yards in terms of where the front lines were, But for most of the war, it was static, classic static trench warfare. And in that respect, it is a place that you could say is the Western Front in microcosm. And what all that meant from the point of view of the experience of the ordinary soldier is that given the huge number of units that passed through here during the war, a lot of men served on this sector as part of their Great War experience. It was not a battle, it was not a battlefield where they went over the top but it was part of the line where they served. Often a place they look back on with some degree of trepidation and remembered fear. And when we look at the vast amounts of memoirs that connect us to the Great War we find a lot of those men having served in this sector. So there's a lot of voices of this part of the line around Cambrin, Coinchy and the Brickstacks from lesser known writers like Graham Seaton Hutchison, who served here with the Machine Gun Corps in the 33rd Division, through to Robert Graves, one of the big hitters in terms of the literature of the Great War, a war poet and writer, and his classic book Goodbye to All That, which we've mentioned a few times in previous podcasts. A big chunk of that takes place in this sector. I remember when I read the paperback edition of that for the first time, seeing the pictures of the Coinchy stacks and wondering what the story was there. So it's an area that's always fascinated me. So we're going to begin this walk in the village of Cambrin, outside Cambrin Military Cemetery, and that's where we'll start. The Military Cemetery, where we're starting off, is one of two British cemeteries that we'll visit on this walk. But these are part of a quite a dense network of British and Commonwealth cemeteries in this area. In the days when the Commonwealth War Graves Commission used to publish the Michelin maps, which I used to have on my wall, with little purple dots showing where the cemeteries were located in northern France and Belgium, you could follow the line of the Western Front by the uh, the number of purple dots as it followed where the fighting had been and where the cemeteries were located but I remember here, particularly in this sector between Armentiers and Lewes, seeing just how many cemeteries there were and this one, like many in this area is slightly tucked away it's just off of the main Bethune to La Basse Road it's a very busy road but there's a tiny little side road to the north the Chemin de Cimetière Anglais the, the way the route's to the British Cemetery, and that takes you up to the front gate of Cambrian Military Cemetery, and we'll open that and we'll walk in. It's quite a a large cemetery, and it was created by the British during the war just behind the Mayor's House, and a bit of grounds that was protected from direct observation from the German lines was a safe place to bury the dead without joining them. The cemetery was initially started by men of the Royal Engineers, now that's an important part of the history of this area because the royal engineers, the sappers, particularly the tunnellers, the men of the tunnelling companies of the royal engineers, played a very important role in the day-to-day activities of the fighting of the trench warfare along this part of the Western Front. And in fact, when we look at the cemetery records for Canberra Military Cemetery, 10% of the burials here Are men from the Royal Engineers, which is probably one of the highest percentages of Royal Engineer casualties buried in what is essentially a frontline cemetery on probably almost any part of the Western Front. So it reflects the important role that the sappers had in this part of the line. Now when you walk along the rows of the graves and you see the cap badge of the Royal Engineers, You can't initially tell just by looking at that whether they're a tunneller or whether they're a member of a special company or a field company or whatever. It's useful always to have the register in your hands as you're wandering around these cemeteries. It's something that I do when I visit a new cemetery for the first time because you see something and you can look the guy up and find out more details about him. And when we look at the register and we look at the tunnellers that are buried here, we see representations from three distinct tunnelling companies the 170th, the 250th and the 251st all of those were very active in the area just to the east of Cambrian and just outside Coinchy where the brick stacks were located. One of the tunnelling officers that are buried in here and I found this during the research for my book is Captain Robert Wallace Hislop. He served with the 251st tunnelling company of the Royal Engineers and died on the 22nd of July 1917, aged 33. So again, he didn't die in any great battle of the First World War. This was in typical tunnelling operations in this sector of the line. He was born in Glasgow and his father Charles was a master house painter in that city. He was educated at the Glasgow Technical College and later at Glasgow University, where he studied many aspects of civil engineering and coal mining before the war. After graduating, he worked as a civil and mining engineer, and this was typical of the sort of men that went on to become officers in tunnelling units when they were formed from 1915 onwards. And in fact, he was a, an old hand here, having served in the Coinchy Brickstacks area for quite some time. The day he died, he left the tunnelling company's headquarters which were located in the chicory factory in Bethune, the town behind the lines, and he went up to visit the front-line positions where his sappers were working. These were held by the infantry, of course, but his sappers were in their positions beneath the battlefield. Not long after he arrived, the Germans broke into one of the mining galleries that his men were working in, and the officers who were on duty at their post there fired their revolvers at the Germans who got into their tunnels. We tend to think of the war underground just being about planting explosive, but there were occasions in which tunnellers met tunnellers, British tunnellers, Commonwealth tunnellers facing German tunnellers and fought each other underground and this was one of them. His lot went down into the tunnel system to assist, but the following the explosion of a German countermine, so as part of their operations to try and disrupt or destroy the British tunnelling that was going on here, they'd broken in to fight the tunnellers but they'd also blown what were called camouflage charges that went sideways rather than upwards so if they went upwards they would create a crater on the surface and destroy a trench or a strong point but if they went sideways they would destroy in this case the tunnels that the British were working on now when a a mine goes off underground like that and disrupts or caves in part of the tunneling system where you're working it creates a build-up of fumes a build-up of gases particularly carbon monoxide gases And the men working down there are very susceptible to this. And Hislop, having gone down, found himself overcome by the fumes and he died of mine gas poisoning. He was buried the next day here at Cambrian Cemetery and all of the officers and most of the men of the 251st Tunnelling Company attended his funeral in this cemetery. So there would have been a good couple of hundred or so of them standing here, facing his grave, attending the ceremony and paying their respects to their governor to their commander and with the funeral done the men returned to the trenches returned to the tunnels and began their strange underground war all over again. When we look at the number of burials that are in Cambrian Military Cemetery there's 819 British buried here and one South African. There's also two German prisoners of war men that were brought in probably from trench raids who died of their wounds and once there were seven Portuguese soldiers buried in this cemetery and then post-war they were moved to the main Portuguese cemetery at Neuve-Chapelle. The Portuguese moved into this sector in 1917 with the creation of a Portuguese expeditionary force, and it was trained up by the British. It wore Portuguese uniforms, a variation of the British steel helmet that was ribbed on the top of it, so it was quite a distinct-looking helmet, and the men were equipped with British weapons so that they could be easily resupplied by the British expeditionary force. They served in different sectors and they lost men by holding the line, just like any unit would do. And then in April 1918, defending that ground around Neuve-Chapelle, their positions were overrun by the Germans in the Battle of the Lys. And they were pushed right back to places like Levante and indeed beyond. And history has not been entirely kind to the role and the sacrifice of the Portuguese troops in the Battle of the Lease in April 1918, but they played a role in slowing down and stopping the German advance, just like many British units. And a lot of people believed that the Portuguese kind of packed up and went home after that, but Portuguese troops were pulled back to the area behind the lines, and then they returned to the battlefield in the late summer and early autumn of 1918, ...and were in action on the very last day of the war, on the 11th of November 1918... ...so we can't underestimate and shouldn't forget the role, the important role... ...that the Portuguese ally had alongside us on this part of the Western Front. And post-war, when it came to commemorating the fallen Portuguese soldiers... ...although there are some Portuguese graves in several British cemeteries of the Great War... ...a large number at Boulogne Eastern on the coast, for example... A decision was made though to move the vast majority of Portugal's dead into one main cemetery and the site of New chapelle close to their big battle there in April 1918 was the obvious location and perhaps some of you will have visited that cemetery when you've been on this part of the front line. Wandering along the rows in the wider aspect of the cemetery we see there's quite a lot of men with dates of death of the 25th of September 1915 which is the first day of the Battle of Loos. So there's quite a few loose casualties in here, lose burials from that northern end of the loose attack on that day. For example, there's 57 men in one area of the cemetery in Row D who were from the 1st Battalion, the King's Liverpool Regiment, who attacked just east of Cambrain on the 25th September 1915 in the opening stage of that loose offensive. Among them is a 16-year-old teenage Tommy, Albert Edward Aimbridge. He enlisted right at the beginning of the war in 1914 as a new army, as a Kitchener's Army recruit and found his way into the 1st Battalion so he must have been only 15 when he originally joined up. And Richard Van Emden, who's been a guest on the podcast before has just published a new edition of his Teenage Tommy's book and I can't recommend it enough. It really is a superb bit of work. Richard's massively updated it from his previous research and it gives us an insight into lads like Albert Ainbridge how a big part of the army enlistments in that early part of the war they were, and and that there were thousands of these teenage Tommies serving in different units right across the Western Front. So when we see graves like this of 16 and 17-year-olds, men who are technically under the age of military service, it's not as rare As we think, it's quite common, but nevertheless it gives us an insight into how these young men thought of themselves. We look at them as children, as teenagers, but a hundred and something years ago, they considered themselves, I'm sure, as men. They'd left school perhaps at 12, gone to work, and they were part of that wider community, working as men in a factory or in a mine or in any other type of industry, and now they were soldiers. But I guess it's the tragedy of such a short-lived life that we look at when we see graves like this. They really had no chance to live. 16 years old, he's done nothing really with his life. No chance to really be anything beyond a worker and a soldier And I often say this, I think it's one of the many lessons that we can potentially take away from visiting the silent cities of the Western Front, the cemeteries of the Great War, is seeing these lives that were largely unfulfilled and making sure that we do the best in our own lives to perhaps live a life that these lads never could. There are two brothers buried in this cemetery, which is sadly not an unusual occurrence, but in this case they're actually buried in the same grave, And somewhat curiously, this is mentioned in the original edition of the cemetery register, which in itself is quite an unusual thing because the cemetery registers, the introduction, the historical introduction, very rarely even mentions any individual stories. And these two lads are Corporal Edward Hubert Tennant and Lance Corporal Philip Lawrence Tennant. They were born with the surname Catchpole but changed their name by deed poll to tenant before the Great War. They came from Grove Park in south-east London, and Edward was educated at Cranley School and was an actor before the war. Possibly that's a reason why he changed his name. Philip was educated at Elton College, and he worked as a bank clerk. The brothers enlisted together in the 16th Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, Public Schools Battalion, on the outbreak of the war, and they went to France together in 1915 and were killed in action on the same day, 10th of January, 1916, by the same shell. So two brothers joined up together, came to France together, went into the trenches together, killed together by the same shell. And again, I wish that was a unique story, but sadly it's not. It happened so often. When brothers join up, when families join these units, it was good for morale, it was good for the brothers to serve together, but the family, the wider family, when these men went into action, when, when they served in the trenches... It meant they could be wiped out in the blink of an eye and it happened so often in the great war their officer wrote to the family afterwards and said it is very sad and their loss is regretted by the whole company they were the life of the platoon and i shall never replace them their mother fanny placed a memorial to them in hither green cemetery in london which states they're buried in the mayor's cemetery at cambrin which may well have been the original name for this cemetery so, with a nod to the lads buried here, we'll return to the Shemander Cemetery on Glay, walk back down to the main road, walk along that for a little way, and turn right at the modern Marie, the, the town hall, and that'll lead us down to the entrance to Cambrin Church, and beyond that, the cemetery. <coughs> Located just behind the church here in Cambrin, the Cambrin Churchyard Extension. You access it through part of the modern French civil cemetery and then you go down some steps into the Commonwealth War Graves Commission plot and you see quite a big area of British graves but also a plot of French soldiers. And this was a cemetery started by the French in 1914 when this was a French sector in that opening stage of the war. The church, which is now behind us, Partly is the original church, it's pretty much on the original design of the church that was here in 1914, and although Cambrian sat on the front line for all four years of the war and was bombarded, and most of its original buildings were destroyed, there are still some where either the bulk of the original building still forms part of what is there today, or parts of it do, and that's certainly true in the case of the church The cemetery after the French had established it was then used by British units from May of 1915 because although British units had taken over the trenches in this area prior to that, they were burying the dead a little bit closer to the front line and then the decision was made probably by one of the senior medical officers in this area to bury the dead a little bit further back in a place of safety where they could be buried without the risk of men getting killed in doing so and where those graves could be maintained and often close to the site of medical facilities. So there were dressing stations in Camberin close to where the cemetery is located and no doubt some of the men buried here died of their wounds in those received probably only less than an hour or so before up in the front line. It's an interesting cemetery in that it's pretty much in date order and you can follow the progression of both the timeline of of the different actions and the day-to-day activities of trench warfare and how some days were more costly than others and also the progression of the British Expeditionary Force during this period of the war. So the burials reflect the initial arrival of men from the regular army, the original BEF, through to the arrival of men from the Territorial Force, the Saturday night soldiers, who began to replace the regulars as they were gradually diminished on the battlefield by the fighting of 1914 and then on into the offensives of 1915. And then from the early summer of 1915 as well, you see the arrival of men from the new army, Kitchener's army, and that's reflected in the burials here as well. And when you look at the graves and the rows and the plots that are in here, It is very much a regimental graveyard so it's a place where units that were serving in the front line brought their dead back for burial not just in a random part of the cemetery but often in mini regimental plots where they'd bury the men from their own unit in one corner or in one row and they'd keep them together and this regimental identity that existed in training that existed on the battlefield also for many units existed in death that they wanted their men to be buried together not with men from other units and that's something you see greatly reflected in here the casualties that are buried in this cemetery are all from the eastern side of Cambrin village the front line extended south from the bethune labasse road down towards the loo sector and men killed in that area were brought back here for burial and also from the northern area of the road up to the ground around the brick stacks there are 1,211 British graves, of which only eight are unidentified. And again, that reflects the nature of the burials here. This was not a cemetery created by clearing the battlefields after an offensive, and in that case you often find bodies that are unidentifiable or have no identity discs or pay books, so you can't work out who they are, and they're often buried by men not from their regiment who can't identify them. This cemetery was made during the war by units serving in the front line who deliberately brought their dead back here for burial, so they knew who these men were. So it's not a surprise that the vast majority of the dead are identified soldiers. And again, and something that I often stress on this podcast, it makes cemeteries like this very important, because knowing who these men are, knowing what units they were in, what kind of backgrounds they came from, where the areas of Britain that they enlisted from and and lived in, the jobs that they had, it gives us a good cross-section of the sort of men and units and type of men that came here to serve in this sector during the Great War. Of the French graves that we can see now, originally there was a plot of around about 150 Poilus buried in this cemetery. There's 98 still here and we can see the distinct French crosses in one corner of the cemetery. So why were 50-odd men removed from here, and where did they go to? Well, some will have been repatriated back to wherever they came from in France. French families after the war, if there was an identified burial somewhere, they could request that their son, their brother, their husband, their father be brought back to their village, their town, and be buried in a family grave. And if you wander around French cemeteries in France, French civil cemeteries, then you will see this very often on the graves in cemeteries like that, where it's mentioning the soldier not just killed a memorial to him, killed on the front line, but he's a soldier killed on the front line and buried in that grave, brought back from that battlefield to be buried there. They also had the option of moving the dead to a larger French cemetery. Now, this was a designated French military cemetery, this plot in Camberin Churchyard Extension, but some families wanted their loved one to be buried in a national military cemetery. So I haven't checked this, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of that 50-odd soldiers that were once buried here were moved to Notre-Dame-de-Lorette in the 1920s. That cemetery has a large number of burials from a wide aspect of the French part of the Western Front. But the retention of the French graves that are here gives us an insight into the role of the French who occupied this sector before the British units arrived in 1915. And it's not just French that we see here. If you look amongst the British rows, you'll see the grave of a Belgian soldier, and there are also three Germans buried here as well. Again, prisoners of war, no doubt, brought back from the front-line area after raids, either us raiding the Germans or the Germans raiding us and died of their wounds in the medical facilities here. Like Cambrin Military Cemetery that we've just been to, there's quite a large number of Battle of Luz graves in this cemetery, with quite large plots from the Loos fighting in different parts close to the church. So, for example, there's plots from the 2nd Battalion, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and 1st Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment. And of that latter unit, there's actually 115 of them buried in this cemetery. Many of them are in what are called collective graves. And originally, and thanks to some friends, I've seen some wartime images of this, many of these graves from the Loos fighting were commemorated by a single cross with a large wooden board on it, listing the men known to be buried in that collective grave. So what do we mean by collective grave? Well, this is a form of mass grave. It's not, when we say mass grave, we think of a big hole dug in the ground and then soldiers randomly tipped in. So what this was, was a grave specially prepared, and the men were all buried in there together, side by side, not in coffins, probably in ground sheets or sandbag hessian material but side by side comrades in life comrades in the trenches comrades in death and this is not uncommon particularly in these early war period cemeteries from 1914-15 where what were effectively trenches or shallow graves were dug and the men were buried together and you see this perpetuated now not with a big memorial but with multiple names on headstones and very often in the middle a single blank grave with just a cross on it indicating that you are looking at a collective grave quite a few cemeteries of the western front have these in moving away from the loose graves of 1915 we can follow a kind of timeline in this cemetery by walking along the rows of graves and and when we get into 1916 and we look at the cap badges of the units represented on the graves that are in that part of the cemetery and we look at an order of battle for the units that were here, we see there's a lot of men from the 33rd Division. Now, this was not a formation recruited in a particular area. It had quite a mixed bag of different units in it, with battalions drawn from the Territorial Force, Territorial Army, as well as the new army, Kitchener's Army. But it spent a good six months or so in this sector, and many units from the division passed through here and buried their dead here. And quite a few, we mentioned accounts of the Great War, quite a few men that served in that division. Graham Seton Hutchinson, who we mentioned earlier, Frank Richards, who wrote Old Soldiers Never Die. He was here with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers that were part of that division. And we spoke to Richard Fisher on the podcast last year, who has reprinted the history of the 33rd Battalion Machine Gun Corps, and a chunk of that relates to this part of the Western Front. So what we see, and what we'll see as we move further into this walk, is just how written about this part of the front line was. One of the battalions that served with the 33rd Division here at that time was the 16th Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment, the Public Schools Battalion. Now we mentioned them previously with the two brothers who were buried in Cambrian Military Cemetery. It was a unit made famous on the first day of the Battle of the Somme when they went into action in the attack on the Hawthorne Crater at Beaumont-Hamill. They'd moved by that time into the British 29th Division from this unit. And young Eric Heaton, that was spoken about in previous podcasts on Hawthorne Ridge, served here as a young officer before he moved down to take part in the Battle of the Somme. Originally, the public schools battalion was made up of public schoolboys. There were public school battalions in the Royal Fusiliers, and indeed, there are men from those public school battalions in that regiment also buried in this part of the cemetery because they were serving alongside the Middlesex. ...in the 33rd Division in this sector at the same time. Now all of these public school battalions were originally recruited from public school boys... ...men who'd gone to the great public schools and the minor public schools of Great Britain. But by 1916, by the time that the battalion was serving here for quite some months... ...quite a few of those men had gone on to take up commissions as officers. And you might ask yourself, why didn't they do that in the very beginning... But there seems to have been a a little bit of a trend to join the army as an ordinary soldier if you'd gone to public school. And also I think there was probably a practical consideration is that the army could not cope with that many men applying for a commission in one go. So their only route into the army was to join as ordinary soldiers and that led to the creation of these public school battalions. But here if we walk along the rows of graves and see the men from the 16th Middlesex We get an insight into the type of men that joined this battalion from this public school background so for example private henry Ryu was killed with the 16th middlesex here on the 30th of january 1916 aged 38. his father was dr charles reu who was a persian expert at the british museum he was educated at dulwich college and later cambridge and Henry before the war had taught for 11 years as a teacher at the Merchant Taylors School. So that is typical of the sort of men that step forward, and rather than seek commissions as officers, they chose instead to serve in the ranks. And there's no doubt that Henry Rieu, if he'd have survived his encounter with this part of the line, and survived the coming Battle of the Somme, then he probably would have been an officer by the end of the war. After well over half a year in this part of the line, the 33rd Division pulled out and marched south to take part in the Battle of the Somme. It would go on to take part in the fighting at High Wood, for example. Replacing them in this sector was the 39th Division. Now, this was a, another new army division. It had been formed by men from a lot of different regiments. There was an entire brigade, 116th Brigade, that included the 11th, 12th and 13th Royal Sussex Regiment, the South Downs Battalions, and the 14th Battalion of the Hampshire Regiment, the Portsmouth Powers. But there was also men from the Sherwood Foresters, from the King's Royal Rifle Corps and from the Middlesex Regiment, for example. So it had quite a broad range of uh, different units and men from different backgrounds. But the mention of the 11th, 12th and 13th Royal Sussex Regiment, well that's from my part of the world where I originally came from in Sussex and three battalions, the South Downs Battalions that have long interested me, and I came to this cemetery for the first time in the 80s to visit the graves of a number of South Downs soldiers who were buried here, including the grave of Sid Creasy. Now, he was SD 47, so his regimental number was 47. He was one of the very first men to enlist in the South Downs battalions in September of 1914. He was killed here by a sniper, aged 21, on the 3rd of June 1916. And I came across him because one Sunday I ended up in a village in Sussex somewhere and there was an antiques fair going on and having a little poke around to see if there was any Great War stuff, I came across a little bundle of postcards and amongst them was a picture postcard of seven men with their heads poking out of a tent and each of them had signed their name alongside where their head was poking out of that tent. So it identified who they were. Of the seven men in the photograph, only two Survive. They were all original South Downs men, and Sid Creasy was one of them. I do intend, and I know I keep saying this, but I do intend to do a podcast just about that photograph and the men in that photograph at some point, perhaps for Remembrance Day further down the line. But anyway, Sid Creasy is one of them, and I came here in the 80s to visit his grave, and he was one of a, a large number of Eastbourne men that served in the South Downs battalions. And this little tent I discovered when I did a bit more research was known as the rabbit hutch and it was a famous tent in their camp at cooden just outside bex hill in their early period of their service there were no wooden huts at that stage and the men were living in tents in quite primitive conditions and these lads shared a tent together whether they knew each other from before the war i don't know said creasy had worked as a an upholsterer in eastbourne before he joined up but when i look at this photograph and i see these faces and they're quite modern faces in in many respects and you look at the, the names written alongside it and only two of those seven lads came back from the war it gives you an idea as to how strong that belief was that there was a lost generation that never returned from the war as we move away from the South Downs lads we see units from battalions and divisions that had moved up from the Battle of the Somme suffered casualties there and then taken over this part of the line which was then considered quiet when you examine some of the stories of the men in those plots you often find that they'd not been in the front line for very long that they were post some replacements who'd arrived in this so-called quiet sector discovered it wasn't quite so quiet and some of them had been killed in just their first few days of active service the last burials here were in february of 1917 and a few were added in 1918, but the bulk of the 1918 burials seem to have been in Cambrian Military Cemetery rather than here. So leaving the cemetery and returning to the other side of the church, we we'll walk back up to the main Bethune-Le road, and then turn right and walk along that busy road. It's not the best place to walk, and in my book in the chapter for this particular walk, we come off of the road a little bit further up into the Rue Emile Zola and there will of course be a map on the podcast website for this and that takes us cross-country across the fields where the communication trenches were and up towards the front line area and following one of those little side roads it brings us up to a French memorial which is again close to the Bethune-Le Basse road but much nearer as well to where the front lines were and that'll be our next stop. When we visit what we consider to be British parts of the Western Front, it's easy to forget or overlook the French contribution and the French sacrifice in those areas. Very often it's understandable to do that because there is very little to actually mark that contribution, but here and there we will find memorials and cemeteries like we've done here at Cambrian. So there are graves in the churchyards and here at this site just astride the Bethune-le-Bassay road is a memorial to the French fighting here in the early period of the war. It's in fact a, a divisional memorial sitting on a little mound by the side of the road and it commemorates the 58th division of the French army that was made up of the 256th, 281st and 295th regiments of infantry and also the 141st Regiment of Infantry Territorial, so a Territorial Infantry Regiment. The bulk of these men, it was a reserve division, the bulk of these men were mobilised in August 1914 from the French Army Reserve. So these were men who had gone through their initial phase of military service as young men, come out of the army, returned to civilian life and had then gone on to the reserve And they would have stayed on that for a given period of their life into their 30s when they would have then transferred into the territorial. So as a Frenchman serving in what was a massive conscript army, you'd give up some permanent part of your time at a young age and then some part-time aspects of your life as a reservist and then territorial for a big chunk of your adult life. And what that meant from the point of view of the French army in 1914 is that they could call up all of these reservists, mobilise the territorials and put a huge armed force onto the battlefield. And that's exactly what happened in those opening moments of the Great War right across France. The men from these different units moved into this sector in October 1914 and they essentially made the Cambrian sector, the Quinchi Brickstack sector, that the British then took over the following year. So they dug the original trenches, prepared the redoubts, worked on the dugouts, fortified the houses, created the medical facilities, established the cemeteries. And that infrastructure that they built up during that winter of 1914-15 was inherited and expanded upon by the British when they came here. By early 1915, the road that the memorial sits astride, that Bethune to La Basse Road, had become the dividing line between the British and the French. So this was the southern part of the British sector, just north of the road, and from here onwards was the French army, along 350-odd miles of the Western Front. And in January of 1915, after the creation of this dividing line between the British and the French, the Germans attacked the British in the brick stacks, and then the French here directly in front of Camberin Village. So the men from the units in this division came under quite a heavy German attack that overran the French positions here, and there was counterattacks that pushed them back. And a lot of the graves in the churchyard that we visited are from this period of the fighting and tie into the sighting and the placement of this divisional memorial here after the war. So what we're seeing here really is a memorial to some forgotten battles on a forgotten front. The British involvement in some of these areas is not that well known, the French participation in it is even less known, although within France, as we've seen in recent years, not just during the centenary but even after the centenary, there is this growth of interest in the role of the French army and there are quite a few English speakers on social media platforms like Twitter, Dave O'Mara and James Taub, for example, who are promoting an interest in English-speaking people in the role of the French army in the Great War, and that can only be a good thing. So from the memorial, we'll cross over the main road and take a minor road opposite that comes up to a bend where there's a little side track going off along the edge of a fenced-off area where there's some trees. And behind that fence where the trees are, there was a big power station in there that was demolished in the late 80s, early 90s, thereabouts. But this little junction, this bend in the road here, we're pretty much on the front line area where the brick stacks were located in this field directly in front of us. And what were these brick stacks that we keep referring to? Well, they were literally just that, piles of bricks. There was a brick factory where the later power station was located that created bricks for the building industry in this part of northern France. And when the bricks were made, they were put in these great piles awaiting delivery. The war broke out in August 1914. All of that came to an end. And there were these massive brick stacks sitting there in the fields that were never, ever delivered and when the two armies met here, the French and the Germans, in 1914, this was the point in which they stopped, and the brick stacks were roughly split, half between the German positions and half between the French. They were big, tall towers, tens of metres tall, that gave a dominance over what was essentially quite a flat landscape, and both sides utilised them to try and dominate each other's positions in this part of the battlefield. And what you see as a, as a development of that, an offshoot of that really, is the creation of some of the deepest trenches on the Western Front. Now I'll put some Imperial War Museum photographs of this sector. There's not a lot of images of this part of the battlefields, but the Imperial War Museum archive has a few of them in their online catalogue and I've put those onto the website with links back to the Imperial War Museum database. And one of the images that I've included on there shows one of these typical deep trenches where you can see a soldier standing there with his rifle in his hand and just how high the parapet, the front of the trench is. And the existence of these brick stacks being these high positions, that's what led to these deep trenches being constructed. Some of the South Downs veterans that I interviewed, Albert Banfield for example is a good example of this, ...remembered just how deep and claustrophobic the trenches were here, perhaps more so than on any other part of the front that he served in. The brick stacks had positions on the top of them, observation posts, both sides put machine guns up there. Both sides tunnelled into the brick stacks to create little chambers and rooms and observation posts at different points. There were steps put up the back of the brick stacks to enable access to the top... And when you look at some of the wartime photographs, you can see that there were wooden boards placed on the back of the British brick stacks, probably for artillery observers or brigade or divisional headquarters observers to note which brick stacks were which. So if they had to send an urgent report back for supportive artillery fire or if the Germans were making an assault on one of these brick stacks, they could quickly identify from the signboard which brick stack was which brick stack. And all of them had names, for example. With both armies in 1914 meeting amidst these brick stacks and the front lines being established there, they were probably some of the closest positions on the Western Front with only tens of yards separating the German front line from the French and later the British front line. So that meant that the possibility of a a big battle taking place here was pretty limited. So what you see is classic trench warfare all quiet on the Western Front taking place here throughout the course of the next four years, but with some periods of activity here as well. So, again, with my interest in the Royal Sussex Regiment, I remember coming across an example on the 27th of January 1915, which was Kaiser Wilhelm II's birthday, his first birthday that had occurred during the war. The Germans decided to mark this by carrying out an assault on some of the British brick stacks here. And they did this with scaling ladders because these were tall towers. You couldn't climb up them very easily. So the Germans had built some wooden scaling ladders... And they put them against the side of one of these brick stacks that were defended by the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment. Some of their pioneer section was on the top of the brick stacks doing some work on them. Suddenly they saw these assault ladders coming up the side and the Germans scrambling up. And they picked up their picks and shovels like some sort of medieval battle and they beat the Germans back with those. So this kind of strange warfare that echoes the medieval nature of siege warfare, which the Western Front became on a much, much bigger scale, is taking place here at these brick stacks in January of 1915. For much of the rest of the war, the bulk of the fighting, if you can call it that, was not raiding or firing. It was the use of trench weapons, so trench mortars, rifle grenades... The British had a thing called a spring gun, which was like a big box of springs with an arm, which you could launch a grenade from. And on the other side of no man's land, the Germans were just doing the same sort of thing with their rifle grenades, their trench mortars, minnenwerfers. And also both sides went underground. When you have positions that are so close together, going underground is about the only way that you can effectively take on the enemy on a regular basis. So British tunnelling companies were operating beneath the area around the brick stacks and the Germans with their pioneers were doing the same. And what you see here over the course of the four years are lots of very small-scale actions. Battles over a single mine crater, a sap in no man's land, a forward trench or even the Germans trying to take a particular position and us taking it back or us trying to take a German trench and them trying to take it back. So over the course of the four years, and the cemeteries in this area reflect that, men were killed in what were really quite insignificant battles in the wider aspect of the war, but of the men who fought there, the men who lost comrades, obviously of great significance to them. So what was it like to serve here? Now as I mentioned, there's a lot of descriptions of this part of the front, and this first one comes from the papers of the 1st Division, regular army division that included the 2nd Royal Sussex that took over this sector in early 1915. Of the dozen or more solid stacks of brick, four or five connected by a parapet of loose bricks, and known as the keep, were in our hands. The other eight, irregularly spaced, made a most awkward wedge into our line. They were backed by a labyrinth of German trench work, and being shell-proof, supports could be massed behind them in perfect safety. The nearest were within bombing distance of the keep, and in those days, the Germans had more and better bombs than we did. Author Robert Graves, who came here with the 2nd Battalion, the Welsh Regiment, arrived on this part of the front in May of 1915, so about five months after the Sussex were here. And he's left this description of his time here in his memoirs, Goodbye to All That, which I'll put a link to on the podcast website. In trenches amongst the Coinchy brickstacks. Not my idea of trenches. There has been a lot of fighting hereabouts The trenches have been made themselves rather than have been made and run inconsequently in and out of the big 30 foot high stacks of bricks It is most confusing The parapet of a trench which we don't occupy is built up with ammunition boxes and corpses Everything here is wet and smelly The Germans are very close They have half the brick stacks We have the other half each side snipes down from the top of its brick stacks into the other's trenches. This is also a great place for German rifle grenades and trench mortars. We can't reply properly. We have only a meagre supply of rifle grenades and nothing to equal the German sausage mortar bomb. A year later, the South Downs Battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment were here And Albert Banfield, the veteran that I knew from Hove, him and his brother served side by side in the signal section of the 13th Battalion Royal Sussex. Marcus and Albert both wrote diaries and their parents typed the diaries up after the war. And this is an extract from Marcus's diary from his first tour of the trenches here at the Brickstacks. We have to spend most of our time in the dugout. The regimental sergeant major, if he sees us outside, makes a great fuss of it. Our dugout is very secure looking and has great wooden beams and small trees for a roof, besides the sandbags on top. It's a very long affair, like a miniature tunnel blocked up at one end. We have not really room to stretch our feet at night. My premier stove is very useful and I've been able to fry some eggs for supper. I must be getting experienced as they have turned out quite well. So we see that with Marcus and the guys in the signal section that even amongst all this carnage around the brick stacks there's still time to have a bit of grub in the front line. While they were here the South Downs battalions experienced some of the underground war on this part of the Western Front when a mine went off at 8.45pm on the 4th of June 1916 a German mine that was blown some 25 yards from their front line parapet. Private Albert Turner from Rotherfield in Sussex recalled the events of that day. "'I shall never forget it. The trench trembled like jelly. Then up she went like one immense black cloud. Tons of earth and stones were thrown into the air and came down on top of us. We were all buried in, and there were groans and cries all round. Dick Mitchell and myself were in the same bay and buried up to our armpits.' but managed after a long struggle to get out. One poor little chap in the next bay had his neck broken by the falling earth and numbers of others had to be dug out. And that's quite a vivid account of what it was like to be on the receiving end of one of those mines going off and these were not like the big mines used on the Somme at Messines, they're fairly small scale charges but you can see the kind of damage that they can do when they go off and for the men in the front line knowing that the enemy is tunnelling away all the time There was that ever-present fear of one of these mines exploding underneath you. And to continue with what that was like, serving with the South Downs Battalions at this time in the 11th Battalion, was Edmund Blunden, who would go on to become one of the major poets of the 20th century and one of the major war poets. And his memoir, Undertones of War, which again I'll put a link to on the podcast website, gives this insight into what the mining activities here at the Coinchy Brickstacks were like. At four o'clock one afternoon, our tunnellers, suddenly locating German mining near their own, put up a defensive mine between the two lines. All had been drowsy till some pale-faced engineers with lengths of fuse in their hands came past, flinging their brief news over their shoulders at us. Now for it, a big drum-tap underground and the earth heaved up to a great height in solid crags and clods, with developing clouds of dust... There was the flame and roar, then this dark pillar in the sunlight, then a twittering, a hissing, and a thudding as it collapsed. At once the new crater was raked with machine gun fire and blasted with trench mortars and rifle grenades. Neither side wanted it, but neither would let the other set foot in it. Several of us, highly excited, regardless of machine gun bullets, stood up on the fire step, staring into the confusion, and trying our longest throws with mills bombs. The smoke and dust hung long and swallowed up hundreds of such missiles. At length the affair died out. Dixies of tea went round at the usual hour and easily became more important than the blowing of a mine. And I could go through memoir after memoir talking about what it was like to serve here, but hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into what this part of the Western Front, the Coinchy Brickstacks, was like. The stacks stood for all in many respects of the grim and terrible strands of that static trench warfare that characterised the worst of the Western Front. With the enemy so close, constant bombardment, snipers, machine guns, the ever possibility of the ground erupting with one of these huge mines. I mean, how exposed would you have felt not just being posted to one of the top of the huge brick stacks but being in the trenches themselves even there death could arrive at any second this might have been a place that many who served here would have chosen to forget today little remains when we stand on the edge of this field little remains of that dark world of the brick stacks except perhaps at that time of year When the soil is turned and there amongst the plough Are the tiny fragments of old brick From more than a century ago Broken fragments of those massive towers Is all that remains Here in these vast open fields of northern France The Great War still casts its long shadow Across this landscape And in our hand a tiny piece of clay A piece of that terrible past can echo somehow of what happened here in this corner of the old front line you've been listening to an episode of the old front line with me military historian paul reed you can follow me on twitter at somcor you can follow the podcast at old front line pod Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com oldfrontline or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.